Hey guys, just a quick reminder that me and the Beardy One will be doing a live show from Celluloid Screams this year. That's at the Showroom Cinema in Sheffield on Friday, October the 19th at 3pm. It'll be all the usual stuff you get from an episode. There'll be a guest and film combo. Uh, we'll be giving away some free swag courtesy of our pals at Arrow Video. And we'll also be doing a live Mitch's Pitches. We'll hopefully see you there and now on with the episode. Before we get started, you should probably know that the following podcast contains strong language and conversations of an adult nature. Also, it will almost certainly contain spoilers. Hello and welcome to episode 25 of Strong Language and Violent Scenes, the podcast giving a second chance to films that might not deserve them. I'm Mitch Bain, I'm a horror writer and an occasional doer of musical things. And I'm Andy Stewart, I write stuff and I make stuff and yeah, I'm just, yeah. Specific as ever. And <laughs> we are joined tonight by um, filmmaker and actor, uh, writer, producer, director and star of Dementia Part 2. You also know him from films like uh, The Mind's Eye and Beyond the Gates, Mr. Matt Mercer. Matt, hello. <laughs> hello. How's it going? <laughs> I'm so excited uh, to be on the show because I love the show and I love that, uh, you know, you're re-exploring movies that have not had a chance in a long time and it's just a blast to listen to you guys. No, oh, thanks you really very much. That's, show, that's so. a very lovely thanks for thing having me on. Uh, and thank yeah. you for doing this, of course. Thank you for taking the time to do it. We've been talking about doing this for a little while as well, for reasons that will become clear, because I think we started talking about this just before Fright Fest, so we've been kind of, this has been on the table for a couple of months now. And yeah. basically the reason that we didn't do it right away, apart from schedules and things, was because your film choice was a little too close to what Preston DeFrancis was doing just that week because he was doing Halloween H2O and you've gone for Halloween 6, The Curse of Michael Myers. That's right. I'm going to get a lot of shit for this. Oh, man. Uh, So um, why this film? I I think I I want to kind of set this up and say that objectively, I know that this is not a great movie. (laughs) <laughs> okay. But I think there are some reasons that I think it's a very underappreciated movie, especially in the canon of the Halloween films. Mm-hmm. I guess I'll start by saying it. Some of it is uh, sentimental. Like it's the first Halloween movie that I saw in theaters. Okay. I was a teenager. I wasn't quite old enough to see it on my own. So I forced my grandfather, who happened to be visiting us at the time, to take <laughs> me to see it. He, I, I said, can we go see this movie Halloween, The Curse of Michael Myers? And he said, what is that? Is it was that a is that a weirdo? He called horror movies weirdos. And uh, I was like, yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely a weirdo. And uh, he took me, you know, I, I got him to take me to see it, and I think he was completely confused by what was happening. So, you know, it's the first one I saw in the theater, and also I think um, I think the other reason I wanted to talk about it is because it's it's a really well made movie in a lot of ways, and it's it was so derided when it came out by critics in such a cynical and nasty way that I think it deserves a second look if if people haven't seen it in a while, especially considering it followed Halloween 5, which was so bad and so <laughs> bland comparatively. Like if you compare, if you watch Halloween 5 and then watch Halloween 6, the filmmaking is just so much better in Halloween 6. 
and it's a much more enjoyable watch. And I also like that Daniel Farrens, the guy who wrote it, really tried hard to like, like usually after something like Halloween 5, the producers take a look at it and go, okay, we can't keep going with this. <laughs> There's too much shit in the soup. Like we've, we've, we've really like added way too much to the mythology and we should just kind of strip things down, sort of like what they did with H2O, like Preston was talking about when he was on, like, like let's take it back to basics. But what I love about Halloween 6 is that Daniel Farren's, you know, that he, he really tried hard to honor what had happened still. And that just doesn't <laughs> happen very often in these things. Like, you know, Halloween 5 has the most bizarre introduction of this character, this man in black who shows up in Haddonfield with a thorn tattoo and steel-toed boots. And he, tried, he, and he continued with that in Halloween 6. So I just think, I, I think there's a lot of things that we'll get into, I guess, as we talk about it as well, that I just think it's really underappreciated and deserves a second look. And that's exactly why we're here, I guess. Yeah, and uh, when you want to talk about confusion, you were certainly confused, Mitch, when it started. Because it comes out the gate pretty heavy. You, yeah. You, were, you, you didn't have the fucking foggiest. <laughs> uh, you didn't have the truth. Um... But yeah, Matt, you listened to the show, you said that, so you'll know what's coming next. And Andy, yeah. you got 30 seconds on the clock? As always. So Matt, for the benefit of anyone who hasn't seen Halloween, the Curse of Michael Myers, but excited, is crazy enough to listen to this episode, <laughs> are you ready to give us a 30 second synopsis if I count you in? Uh, yeah, this is going to be really hard, but I, yeah, I've, been dread- <laughs> I've, been dre- I've been dreading this, but alright, I'll try. Here we go, Three, <laughs> two, one, go. It's been six years since Michael Myers' last reign of terror in Haddonfield, Illinois. Uh, and Halloween has uh, been all but banned in, Hadden, in, in Haddonfield. But Jamie Lloyd, who is now who has since disappeared with Michael Myers, has been kidnapped and resurfaces on a radio show uh, as she is trying to escape the clutches of an evil cult and she time oh, holy shit man. <laughs> oh man i started so strong and then i veered into details it's, a, it's a, the, the um the biggest and most frequent mistake that people make when they're doing that is they get too bogged down in about the first 20 pages <laughs> yeah i should have just gotten straight to tommy doyle believes that he still exists and on this halloween he's coming back or something like that i, I just went way into too much detail yeah <laughs> but uh, in the, but in the spirit of getting into it in detail, let's jump in. Yeah, absolutely. And it kicks yeah. off with the Dimension logo, which is now potentially even creepier than the events of the film. <laughs> Jesus uh, Christ. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and I think it is fair to say, Mitch, that pretty quickly out the gate you were like, what the fuck is happening here? What is this? Um, Yeah, a lot of things kind of pointing to the fact that we're in a hospital. A lot of things pointing to the fact that we're definitely not in a hospital. It starts with that Dimension logo with this really creepy, like, wind moaning sound underneath it. And it opens, yeah, with Jamie Lloyd, now played by a different actress, not Danielle Harris anymore, yep. getting wheeled through what looks like a hospital in a sewer. <laughs> <laughs> wheeled into a room, and she's screaming her brains out, and she's giving birth. There's a lot of flash cutting. Even before we see her, there's this, like, weird flash cutty montage, which sort of pretty much announces this isn't your grandfather or your, this isn't your father's Halloween. <laughs> it's kind of, kind of like where Halloween showed massive restraint. This is just going to be like really in your face. So it kind of sets that up. I just keep thinking of your <laughs> how your grandfather must have been reacting to all of this. <laughs> like, yeah. like, what the yeah. F- what the hell? Yeah, the hospital uh, very quickly, like you say, becomes a sewer, then becomes some kind of occult stone chamber. 
bedecked with real like I, I didn't think that this was a real thing but there's like flaming torches on the walls it's a proper chamber yeah it's a proper chamber literally god knows where i mean we find out later where it is but it's uh-huh. it's like really well set designed and lit by these torches and you've got jc brandy playing jamie lloyd giving birth to a baby which is then immediately taken from her yep. mm-hmm. by the man in black so we pretty quickly see the man in black who was introduced in halloween 5 who if anyone doesn't recall at the end of halloween 5 he, the man in black basically bursts into the haddonfield jail police station and steals michael myers and jamie lloyd so this this is where they've been mm-hmm. is in this chamber sewer wherever they are and the the movie will soon reveal where they've been but yeah like she gives birth the man in black comes in takes the baby and she's like obviously doesn't want that to happen she's saying don't take my baby and then it kind of dissolves out and then a nurse comes in and uh, brings her baby and says we gotta get out of here now and so they try to escape with Jamie's baby absolutely and that's uh, I think round about this point we're getting the the pretty heavy handed voiceover from Paul Rudd or Paul sorry that's right Paul Stephen Rudd uh, as he as he is here in his uh, on screen debut, yes, starting and introducing. <laughs> yeah, this this is where we get the voiceover from Paul Rudd explaining. There's so much plot to cover to set up what happens in the movie and also what's happened in the past. That yeah. they've got a voiceover by Paul Rudd. They've got the radio broadcast happening in the beginning. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the baby's getting uh, the, the the baby's getting the thorn sigil drawn on its chest all at the same kind of all at the same time. I think this this is this is very much a kind of like previously on Halloween. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, if Halloween was a TV series, it'd be previously on Halloween. <laughs> yeah, before the nurse comes, you know, before Jamie makes her escape. Yes, they've got the baby in swaddling cloth on this sort of altar. And they are drawing a thorn symbol on it with a bloody knife mm-hmm. and um, preparing it for God knows what. And during the whole of this, I don't think I looked at the TV once, Mitch. I just watched you. Yeah, because Matt, as you know, there's a running joke on this show that I have seen nothing. I'm a horror latecomer and this is no exception. This is my first watch. <laughs> <laughs> oh, is it really? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> now, had you had you seen all the sequel, all, all the other Halloween movies prior to this? No. So, or were you kind of jumping in? Um, oh shit! Uh, I, I'd seen I'd seen a handful, but I basically had to crash course myself, which was handy that this film did that for me. Yeah, there's a degree. lot of position to help you out between yeah. Paul Rudd's opening uh, narration, the radio broadcast that's happening with Barry Sims, the shock jock, which apparently everyone in Illinois listens to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> including Dr. Loomis. It's like, why is he listening to this Howard Stern-esque show? Um, <laughs> that's, that's amazing. I had I had the Haddonfield Howard Stern written in my notes. Yeah. Well, they, they originally <laughs> asked Howard Stern to do it, and he passed on it. Oh, really? Yeah, so uh, I, I don't think that's an accident. No, I guess not, no. But yeah, like, like I, I would say that the first like five minutes or so of this are fiercely disorientating, but once they get to the other side of it, it's like, okay, I know where I am now. Yeah, you pretty quickly land in familiar territory once Jamie kind of starts trying to escape from the, the complex, as we'll call it at this point, because we don't know any more about it. And it becomes very standard stock and slash stuff for a good while. But yeah. but what you find out quite quickly is that this, like you rightly said, Matt, is that whereas Halloween's quite restrained, I would argue it's by far the most violent of all of the films. Yeah, for sure. And I think a lot of that happened in the reshoots for the theatrical cut, because as most people know, there's, there's two cuts of this movie. There was an original cut, which is now called The 
producer's cut. Mm-hmm. And there's this theatrical cut, which is after the producer's cut was test screened, it didn't play very well with audiences or the producers at Dimension. So there was a, a debate between the Akkads at Trinkus International, mm-hmm. who own the rights to the story, and Miramax. And Miramax or Dimension won out. The Akkads didn't want to reshoot anything, and the Miramax did. And so they won, and they got to shoot like they reshot like one third of the movie. And so a lot of this violence you're talking about is that stuff. Like yeah. they mm-hmm. they felt it just needed to be punched up. So in this whole escape scene with Jane. Amy, for example, she's running out of this facility. It's raining and there's smoke and everywhere. And some like drunken <laughs> construction guy walks up to the car. She, she hops in a truck to try to escape that's sitting there. And this guy runs up and he's like, oh, that's my truck. And then Michael Myers literally twists his head off. Yeah, like, clean off. Like, like, yeah, like, <laughs> like the, the lid off a ketchup bottle. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I've just yeah. got him written in my notes as handlebar because that's really yeah. his, that's really his defining feature. I want to know more about yeah. that guy, but sadly we don't get that. And, I just want to also yeah. say it's nice to see Michael's mask looking a little bit better than it does in part five because in part five it's frankly preposterous. Yeah, it's awful. I mean, it, it really got bad after Halloween too. It just there wasn't a good mask until this movie hmm. and that's actually one of the one of the things i like about this movie is they finally got the mask back in the right direction because in halloween 5 it looks like the mask is angular and bizarre it looks like john cusack on a bender it's just <laughs> great <laughs> I showed it to Mitch the, I showed it to you the other day, Mitch, and you were like, "It's really like baggy." <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah, it's it's yeah, it's, it's like it's like pastry that's been like dra- like rolled out and draped over his face. Yeah, I mean they've never gotten it to be just like it was in the first one, yeah. but that's such a that's such a good way to describe it in the fifth one. I mean, this is the I feel like six is the closest they've come to getting it right since the first two. Yeah. So Handlebar is dispatched as quickly as he appears, but lest you forget, this is the second. <laughs> second kill with the film because the nurse that helped Jamie escape is also gone by this point and yeah. you're right this sets up the tone that one this is in pretty much every sense of the word like a pretty relentless film but also it does not fuck around with the kills no no she's literally like stabbed onto the wall with her head her head onto a spike it hangs there which by the way the other thing I want to say about that opening is this movie it looks amazing if there's anything that's incredible in this movie it's the cinematography is really good and it's really it really begins in that moment where the nurse is standing there in that dark hallway and you haven't seen Myers yet and he emerges out of the darkness mm-hmm. like that shot it's cool. great yeah. and it's really yeah. scary and you've got George Wilbur back as the shape too which is cool he's, he's, he's very good as Myers yeah and I, I suppose at that point we kind of we kind of turn straight into what is basically kind of the A story of this thing yeah yeah when we're, uh, we're introduced to Danny I mean, you, for you coming into it, it must have been particularly baffling what was going on here and why someone who looked particularly like the killer from Pieces uh, was standing in, standing in his bedroom brandishing a knife. But that's where we cannonball into. <laughs> Yeah, like uh, yeah, for, for, yeah. From my perspective, characters are being introduced at a rate that I can't handle. But um, yeah, so so um, yeah, so he's he's kind of affected. He's like waking from a nightmare, right? Yeah, it's a kind of it's a bit of both. It's a kind of sleeping and waking nightmare because I think he's awake at the point when he's hearing the voice going "kill for me." I am. Like, so I, I think he's already awake at that point. Had you practiced that before we did this? Uh, no, that's just. <laughs> um, so yeah, he, so he wakes up. She kind of shouts for his mom. We come. We come to know later that that is um. Kara, Kara yeah. so she kind of comes, does all the kind of kind of comforts him and so on, and then goes and gets undressed while inevitably listening to Barry. <laughs> 
Yeah, like everybody does. Like, <laughs> I, I just think it's funny. Like they were, tr- it was. It's so clear they were trying to come up with some kind of device to it, ha- explain everything that's happening and very, very subtly seed elements of the story and things about Michael Myers. And I just think it's hilarious that literally everybody in Haddonfield listens to this show. Kara's <laughs> listening to it. Tommy Doyle, Loomis, Loomis yeah, hysterical. It would have been. It would have been great if uh, you know, in Paul Rudd or uh, Tommy's opening voiceover, if just at the last bit being like in 1993 a law was passed requiring all homes in Haddonfield to listen to Barry Sims. I feel like it was like, well, what's the best way to do this? And somebody said, and maybe it was Farron's, maybe it was one of the producers, I, I don't know, but somebody had to have said, the shock jack thing is reaching its its pinnacle right now. It's There's got to be this guy who we can, you know, he can be a character that we want to see die later on. <laughs> we can bring him later. Yeah, but also he can be the guy that everyone's listening to in the beginning because he's the local shock jack. <laughs> yeah, he's like simultaneously the local shock jock and also just the worst guy as well. Yeah, and he uh, actually does, uh, he cliff notes a lot of what's gone before uh, through the medium of his radio call-in show. And that's it's through him that we learn that Halloween's been banned in Haddonfield since 1989. And then he gets, we learn that Michael Myers has got a lot of female fans that want to, that want to fuck him. Yeah. But are we to believe that Loomis has settled in Haddonfield now? That's what it seems like. It seems like he is either living in Haddonfield or living on the outskirts of Haddonfield. It's uh, it's hard to tell, but he lives in some sort of secluded cottage and claims that uh, that's why he loves it. He loves it out there. He loves the countryside. He can finish writing his memoir. <laughs> <laughs> is, this but, just um, be, is this just to be close to the action? Should it happen again? I was going to say, he's definitely Haddonfield adjacent because he's, like, yeah. he's, he's close enough to get kind of right in there at the drop of the hat when things kind of dial up. And, uh, and, and while, while listening to uh, everyone's favourite radio host, Cara starts uh, undressing, presumably for bed, before noticing that her next door neighbor is Pervin on her. Yeah, he's watching her. One thing, I don't know if we said this before, but you know, he's watching her and we aren't quite sure why, but we come to discover that she's living in the Myers house. Yeah, yeah. While he's perving on her uh, and watching the house, and she thinks that he's some sort of peeping Tom, uh, he's actually keeping an eye on the house because he is Tommy Doyle, the kid that Laurie Strode is babysitting in the first movie, and he's become obsessed with Michael Myers. He and really has. <laughs> yeah. He really and he's has. weird. Yeah, he is, it's, it's such a weird... And this is, like we said, this is Paul Rudd. This is Paul Rudd's first film, but he plays it wild. He's got, like, a weird accent, and every all his mannerisms are really, like, overblown <laughs> and super, super creepy. Yeah, he plays someone who's, like, socially exiled himself or something, which I, I know that this was his, his first movie. Actually, a little... I did an acting program when I was in college, uh, this, this acting program in England and in, in Oxford. And Paul Rudd was a former graduate of it. He was doing a play called The Shape of Things in the West End. So he came and did like a master class and like a talk back with us. It, supposedly, Rudd does not like this movie very much. Okay. It was his first movie and he, he feels like, you know, he was figuring out mm-hmm. how to perform in front of the camera. And he does come off kind of big and strange in the movie. <laughs> like it, it, the performance is pretty big. I think it's good, but uh, it's a little big. But I, I asked him, I was like the only person in this acting program who was like also kind of a horror geek. And I was like, I have to ask him about Halloween 6 and what that was like. So I, I asked him, like, so um, I just had a question about uh, what was it like on Halloween 6? That was your uh, as your first film. And what was that experience like? And he was like, he looked like a little dismayed for a moment. <laughs> and I brought up, he's like, he's like, yeah, yeah, that was a. Uh, that was my first film, Halloween Six, and you know I had I made that, and then and then I made a movie called Clueless, which came out, and I had some what they call in Hollywood, I had some heat. Yeah. 
And then we had to reshoot scenes for Halloween 6, and then that came out. And I just remember him saying that after it came out on video, he said if he was in the video store, he said this to our class. He said, if I was in the video store and I saw someone trying to rent it, I literally had the impulse to try to stop pay them to not rent it. to pay them to not rent the movie. Um, but apparently he's made peace with it and he appreciates being in it. But to get back to the point, yeah, he, he's, he's a strange, yeah, yeah, it was, I, I it, it was just fun watching him squirm when I asked him. <laughs> His performance is a little big and strange, but I feel like it kind of fits because Tommy's clearly someone who's experienced, he experienced this, this trauma as a kid and he's kind of socially exiled himself and he's become yeah. obsessed with Michael Myers and trying to figure out the pattern of his evil, which is the essentially what this whole movie is about yeah so i think it's relatively fitting there are some moments though that when we get when we get down the line here there's a couple of moments that i just are ridiculous i mean i i must admit like so like when as a way to introduce the character when you see him kind of at that point kind of without explanation spying on her and then it cuts back to the kind of you know the kind of textbook movie crazy person room with all the press clippings all over the wall yeah and their cars yeah. and stuff like that it's like it's selling tinfoil hat right out of the gate in a way that i wasn't ready for <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. He has walls are plastered in news articles. He's looking at her through a camera that has the longest lens in history. <laughs> on that telescope from Armageddon. The next morning when they're leaving to go to school, he's still spying on them through the window, and he's standing in the window like he's glued to it. Like he's literally like, <laughs> standing like the weaker man in the window. <laughs> so when you see that, you kind of think, it's like, have you been there the whole night? <laughs> yeah. Well, he, he probably has. That's the reality of it. Like, he's so obsessed. He's got some outlandish theories. <laughs> He, uh, he calls in to Barry Sims's show um, and speculates that Miles was taken by the CIA and killed all the CIA operatives and then was shot into space in a rocket. Yeah. yeah. This is, do you know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, yeah. Whatever, yeah. Does he have that theory or somebody else has that I theory? Think it, that calls- Oh, is he espousing somebody else's theory at that point? Is it? It's certainly Paul Rudd, though, that's on the the call-in, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's definitely him that's on there, I think. Yeah, he definitely calls in, yeah. And he says, he has some line like, I was eight years old when it happened to me. I I would guess Rudd watched this performance afterward and said, oh, I really overdid that. (laughs) (laughs) Because he just over-enunciated. He's like, I was eight years old when it happened (laughs) to me. My wife watched it with us as well, and she was just like, what the fuck? Why is he doing that? Like, Why is he speaking like that? (laughs) yeah. Uh, yeah, but, uh, yeah. Now we know <laughs> the guy never ages, though. He looks exactly the same now as he did then. It's the most bizarre thing ever. Oh yeah, definitely. It's uh, so back to Loomis at this point because, like you say, I mean, he's yes. the next person that you see kind of uh, sitting uh, listening to Barry Sims in his spare time, and um, <laughs> and then he's drinking with a co- uh, a colleague, is it Terence Wynn? Yeah, Doctor Wynn. Yeah, that wants him out of reti- wants him out of retirement. It's lovely to see Donald Pleasance back, but he, he never looks well throughout it. He looks kind of frail, and obviously he died like pretty quickly after it. He, he's definitely very frail, but he still gives it his all. He puts oh, his yeah. all in. Hundred percent. Gravitas is still there, I think. The Gravitas is still there. Um, he's got some choice lines in this one, too. I think some of the best Loomis lines in the whole series. Like, he can take the simplest lines and just make a meal out of them, you know? Oh, yeah. But he, um, he's still very much uh, giving it the same old shtick he's been doing since the first film. Evil, yeah. black, darkness. It's the same old shit. Uh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> My favorite thing about this opening scene, too, is like, once again, the cinematography is great, but it's this long tracking shot that goes through the through his cottage and finally lands on him on the desk. And Barry Sims said, isn't that old coot dead or something? And he turns around and goes, not dead. 
just very much retired. <laughs> but the, the tracking shot through the house, like they, they try to light it really warmly. So they put all yeah. these lamps in the house. And if you watch it, there's like 18 lamps in this guy's house. <laughs> like there's literally just so many little lamps in the house. So it's a fun, it's a fun game to count the lamps yeah, in that shot. Just, there's electricity in so, the spinning like I was, a circular saw. I was just saying, he's, like, gonna, yeah. he's coming back out of retirement to pay his electric bill. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I yes. think it's at this point that you get your first kind of taste of the thorn cult proper going. Uh, I think it's at this point that Loomis mentions it to win. Mentions that it's the curse that's been on Michael his whole life, compelling him to, kind of driving him to kill his family, no? Yeah, I think so. And then we jump yeah. back to Jamie, who is still running like a, like a madwoman. Fresh out of labour, running like a madwoman, and Michael never seems to be more than 10 feet away from her. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like she... Yeah, somehow he just knows where she is, and, and so she's she's on the run. She's uh, stolen this uh, mullet McMustache's truck, and she makes it <laughs> to um, this bus depot and she's trying to uh, find somebody to help her. Of course she arrives at the bus depot where they, when the entire staff is on some 10 minute break. <laughs> like back in 10. One thing I love about this whole sequence though and one thing I, I think this carries to the whole movie is that it's constantly storming and you don't get that in many of the Halloween movies. I think this, yeah. this movie has more lightning and thunder and rain than any of the other Halloween movies. It's, it's absolute monsoon season, isn't it? <laughs> yeah oh it's coming down like cats and dogs so she goes in this bus depot and she all the line like the circuits are down or something she can't get the cops or, or something so she calls barry sims i mean everyone's obsessed with barry sims she calls barry sims and she said and, uh she puts out a, a plea to dr loomis she's like dr loomis are you out there and of course since loomis is listening to the show as is tommy everybody in town they all hear her this is the moment they all realize, oh, she's still alive. She, you know, she's she's still alive. And, you know, we see this look of foreboding on Tommy's face, knowing that, oh, this might be another Halloween where Michael comes back to town. It's pretty good luck so that then, she got through to that's the show. True. Presumably, yeah, right. Presumably that's quite a busy switchboard. Yeah, how many people are trying to call? I mean, it's a <laughs> Oh, show. fucking loads no, of I mean, people. Like, like, <laughs> like, conservatively, a couple of thousand at a time, I guess. But, no, but um, after she does this, yeah, she kind of, uh, she finds a barn to kind of take cover in or what seems like a kind of barn house and um, inevitably steps on a twig while she's which <laughs> occupational hazard of hiding in a barn. I the, loudest, the loudest twig in in history. It's a fucking shotgun. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> And again, um, again, like the like she she snaps on the twig, and the next second, Michael's behind her. I told you. Yep. Like right there, and um, <laughs> and what yeah. what what is it that he impales her on? Oh, it's like a combine harvester or something. Some kind of. Yeah, know. it looks like some sort of bush trimmer. It's like if you took a bunch of those bush trimmers and put the, five of them on a forklift. <laughs> I don't know what that thing is, <laughs> but it's like. But it's really menacing looking, and um, and this is a shocking moment because Jamie Lloyd is someone that we have yeah, yeah. grown to love for many movies. Like, and she's been the main character in the last two movies, and in this one, this is such a aggressive dispatch. Yeah, that's bloody and uh, it's violent, but also yeah, but like pretty indiscriminate as well. For an established character, I guess it's similar to uh, Jamie Lee Curtis dying. I know you we don't want to talk too much about Halloween Resurrection. No one ever does. But uh, it's pretty. I guess it's yeah. similar to killing off Laurie Strode at the start of that. Yeah, yeah. You get a similar, at least as an audience member and someone who's invested in the yeah. the story of these characters, that you get a similar feeling from it. I think. I think if it, if it were Daniel Harris still playing the role, it would feel even worse because you you know you connect her with that character so yeah. much. <laughs> Not, not not to put down J.C. Brandy. She does a good job. Sorry, J.C. Brandy. But like, uh, 
yeah, it's like this character who we've been on the road with for so long and these movies are suddenly dispatched like this and it's a really aggressive kill. And then he yeah. turns on the machine and just grinds up her inside. It's just like, oh my God. So uh, yeah, <laughs> no, she's gone. You know what it made me feel like when that death happened when I saw it the first time as a kid in the theater? It was like when I saw uh, Alien 3 as a kid and all these characters who are your heroes and aliens, you see them brutally autopsied. Right. They all get killed immediately. You know, it feels kind of like that. It's like, ah, oh, this character's just getting just treated like crap all of a sudden. But it also is, you know, it's a punch in the gut. It's, it's a pretty ballsy move, I think. I think it's pretty cool. I would agree. Yeah, yeah. and I th- and I think that, like, like you say, Matt, I think that as an act, like as a kind of hunt and chase sequence, it works fine as well. Yeah. Yeah, I think the bus depot and the barn are both really creepy locations and as ridiculous as it is that there's nobody in that bus depot it's just a really it's just a really poorly timed team building weekend for everyone who worked there (laughs) right yeah they're all off doing some team building exercise i love that too like the atmosphere they create in that is like like it's raining so much and the the lights are all pushed through these windows that have water coming down them and it's just it's it's great i mean there's a lot of really good looking stuff in there yeah i'm gonna keep going off on these tangents no it's fine fine, please please do michael uh he goes right that's her dead. Let's go and get this baby. Yeah. Um, and quickly sees that it's not a baby. Rather, it's a rolled up towel. Yeah. Yeah. He goes out to the truck that Jamie drove away from the bus depot to get to this barn when she's trying to escape. And he, you know, and he opens up the truck hoping to find the baby. And it's, yeah, a swaddled roll of paper towels. We don't very often get to see Michael Myers get duped in these movies. <laughs> yeah. I like to think about what he th- what he was thinking when he found it. Like, I don't who knows what Michael Myers thinks about. He's so inhuman. But I like to think about him going, ah, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> you know, where could she have left this bay? I, it's either the bus depot or all the way back at the weird complex, the underground sewer cult place. Where, where do I gotta? Where do I go now? Yeah, would have been. Where that, do you start? Where do you start? It would have been a good thing yeah. to cut back to, just to like you know, just see like him, just kind of like walking around the bus depot with this kind of like genuine general demeanor of like thinning patience, just looking in cupboards, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> you know, just <laughs> lifting <laughs> stuff, <laughs> peering in bins. <laughs> yeah, the staff is coming back from their late lunch, and he's killing them off one by one. <laughs> kind of, yeah, but we then return pretty quickly to familiar territory. We're back to Haddonfield on Halloween night, and despite what we've already heard. Halloween seems to be in full swing. Well, yeah. Because um, we're introduced to, um, and I know I said a minute ago that Barry Sims is the worst guy. He's not the worst He's guy. He's not the film. worst guy. No, not even close. Because Carla's dad, what's his name again? John Strode. John Strode. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like, he's the worst guy in this. Holy shit. So the guy who plays in Bradford English, he's a great actor. But he was definitely saddled with a character that is written to make you want to see him die. Like, you can't wait to see this guy get his comeuppance. Oh, God. And yeah. he's literally the worst guy. John Strode, brother of Laurie Strode's father. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. They named the parents John and Deborah, Deborah Strode. Yeah, it's obviously right. after John Carpenter and Deborah Hill. And he's like the worst guy. Yeah, he, he, he like we open on him uh, chopping down a sign in his front yard that some kids have put a Myers mask on. Yeah, and some punk kids. On it. He's coming. Yeah, these, these kids who are, that's a pretty dark joke for like six-year-olds. <laughs> Just throwing it. But uh, he, he screams at them enough of this Michael Myers bullshit as he chops down the sign. He's screaming at the kids, and then he goes in and lambasts his daughter for coming back home to live with them. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And he's just, yeah, he's an all-around, like, he's an alcoholic. I don't I don't find his performance unbelievable. No, I think no, it's no. totally no, no, believable. No. But, he is, but he is truly a horrible person. <laughs> like, just the worst person. But yeah, it's like his objective was to say, I can't wait to see this guy die. <laughs> you know? Definitely. And like, 
like you say, like yeah, performance wise, there's nothing wrong. It's just, like yeah, it's just, it's just an unbelievably like grotesquely unlikable character. And I think this is also where you discover that uh, they are living in this house because Strode Realty has fallen on hard times, and his brother could never sell the house because of what happened there. So now that now they're living there. Yeah, <laughs> and I, I I'm sorry, but that house would go for a fucking fortune. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of people who want to live there. Oh, some of these people that are phoning into Barry Sims's show, they'd be fucking loving that. Yeah, people who want to have sex with Myers, like they, yeah. This woman would be lying, laying in wait for him. <laughs> What's the line? Uh, psychos love nymphos or something like that. Oh, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> but yeah, he he's horrible, and uh, he calls Danny a bastard, and he like he slaps Kara, and then Danny pulls a knife on him, and we get our kind of first flash of what kind of person Danny might be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Danny, who was having the nightmare earlier about the man in black, and he hears voices we start to get a sense that maybe he's inflicted with the same curse or whatever it might be that drives Michael. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of seeded pretty nicely there. <laughs> um, it's pretty clear, um, I guess. Uh, <laughs> you had mentioned this before, but this is the first time we see Haddonfield in the daytime, and I, I think that one of the things I really like about this movie that is underappreciated is that it's the first one in the series that really feels like it's the fall. It, it, it was shot in the fall, the leaves are orange, it's Halloween, there's Halloween decorations up. It really feels like a Midwestern town at Halloween. Um, especially in the longer lens shots where you have characters talking in the foreground and it's just like a blaze with orange in the background and you really get a sense of that in this movie and I think it adds to the the atmosphere and the environment it's, it's really cool yeah um, and then it's back to Tommy at that point who is uh, listening to the, some playback from the calls from the previous night obsessively obsessively yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I mean I mean as ever yeah um, and uh, he kind of goes to investigate retraces her steps a little bit it seems and uh finds the baby in a cupboard in a bathroom at the bus station no are we to believe yeah. are we to believe that no one has used the bathroom in a whole <laughs> look a, look a whole look, day? look that bus depot is perilously understaffed okay <laughs> <laughs> yeah it is no one's been down there they didn't find the baby or the, and they didn't see the trail of blood the, like Jamie's still bleeding, I, I assume, from her pregnancy, from having just given birth. Yeah. <laughs> and so she's got this trail of blood uh, leading out down to the bathroom. No one saw that. No one heard the baby. I guess the baby maybe could have been quiet when people were down there using the bathroom. I, I guess know. so. You can sleep in as a bathroom. Yeah. Also, one little thing, like Tommy is remixing or like mixing up the background noise in his recording of the phone call from the radio show. And he hears someone announcing like the next stop on the bus line. That's but there right. was nobody in the bus where was that person when she was there? <laughs> <laughs> uh, whatever, I don't care. It's fine. And then, so it's, it's, yeah, it's funny. I was gonna say, yeah, you, you can't get too bogged down in that stuff. And then he just straight up steals a baby. Yeah, straight up steals a baby. Could have been anyone's baby. He, yeah, he took left a- it there for while they went and got a snack. <laughs> You'll be okay. <laughs> You'll be okay in this locker. <laughs> yeah. Where the paper towels were, she just swapped the baby out for the paper towels. <laughs> If, if Michael had known that that was where it was kept, just like right where she got the paper towels from, he'd have felt pretty stupid. Yeah, yeah. I, it's kind of surprising he didn't go back there, but um, yeah. yeah. He, fi- <laughs> he finds the baby, he steals the baby. And kind of, he approaches Dr. Loomis at that point as well, doesn't he? And kind of talks a little bit about the Strodes and the fact that they're living in the Myers house. <laughs> he, he approaches Dr. Loomis as if Dr. Loomis would immediately recognize him. We're, we're, we get into some intercutting here where Kara goes to her to, to school, where she's taking classes at the local college, and she discovers these drawings, Dan. Danny's been drawing like thorn related drawings of murder. <laughs> and 
<laughs> and drawings of him killing his family. And yeah, Rudd takes the baby to the hospital to get it checked out. And this is one of the moments where Rudd, he goes in, he's like, yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah. I need to see a doctor. And the nurse is like, well, what seems to be the problem? And he's like, I need to see a doctor. He goes from like zero to 60. <laughs> he, he just like explodes at her for no reason. And yeah, and then he sees Dr. Loomis. And yeah, he approaches him like, uh, it's me, Tommy Doyle. And Loomis is like, oh, oh yeah, I think I know you. <laughs> <laughs> I saw you for all of two seconds as you ran out of a house on Halloween in 1978. Sorry, man, you look a little bit different. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, they should have had Rudd pull out a picture of himself as a kid, like Brian Andrews from the first movie. Like, I looked like this then. Actually, now that I'm coming to think of it, Tommy doesn't really have that bad a time in the first film that would cause him to be this fucked up. No, not really, yeah. He kind of just runs away. Yeah, he sees Myers come up the stairs and Lori locks them in a closet and then she tells them to go down the street and get help. And that's about it. (laughs) Uh, So he's seen like a scary guy and he saw her wounded, but that's that's about it. He saw a scary guy on Halloween night. Yeah. I mean, I would buy that he's obsessed with it for some reason and, you know, was close to it, but he didn't experience like, yeah, he wasn't like attacked or anything like that. Yeah. I think it, 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 it probably comes off more like this kind of like pathological obsession rather than like trauma. Yeah. I, I, I agree. I forget, think so. I forget think it then. <laughs> I'll throw my point. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, it's probably a combination, but I think he's definitely pathologically obsessed and he's he plays it almost like he's got a little bit of a sociopathic tendency himself in a weird way because he's like so obsessed and always lurking around. It's very strange. Yeah. No, he, anyway. He lives in a house just... Him and an old lady. Yeah, what's the situation yeah. there? What's the, yeah, what's his living? What's his the story about his living situation? Well, I feel like we don't get a ton of his backstory, but they say that it's a halfway house ah. run by this Blankenship. So we have to assume Tommy at some point got out of some sort of rehabilitation facility or some kind of you know maybe not something at the level of security of the sanitarium that Michael Myers is at, but he maybe he's been away somewhere. And um, but you, you have to wonder like, well, what happened to Tommy's family? What's he been doing all these? years and yep. all we know is he's in this halfway house presumably now. They, they still live in town <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> yeah um and then it's it's uh it's back to the house and specifically um deborah knows about the house now yeah by the way deborah played by kim darby golden globe nominee kim darby who's incredible she's an amazing actor and this is some of my favorite stuff in the movie she's Back at the house, Loomis comes to visit her, having run into Tommy, and he told Loomis that people are living in the Myers house, the Strodes. Mm-hmm. So he goes there to warn her, but there's this great sequence where she is kind of just puttering around the house, like doing some laundry and moving some boxes around and cleaning up some things because they've just moved into the house. Mm-hmm. And it's it kind of seems like sort of innocuous, like walking around the house. But it actually, there's a lot of little uh, seeds planted in this, in these scenes Yeah. Mm-hmm. with, uh, you see this, an ax, you see, oh, there's, she's washing linens that uh, she later hangs up and the washing machine has an issue that she has to flip this electrical switch on a box in the basement. Right, All these yeah. little things are setups for suspense pieces later. But this is one of my favorite scenes because Kim Darby is so good at, she keeps hearing sounds in the house and we know that Myers is around at this point. And it's really creepy. Yeah. Like she keeps hearing things and you're just waiting. I actually think there's a lot of restraint in the music 
in this section too, and you're just waiting for something to happen. And I think I, I love this. This is one of my favorite sections in the movie, actually. No, I, I think that is really good. And also, I think that the conversation that she has on the phone with her husband, yeah, and then great. is really good as well. And he's yeah. been as he's been as usual, kid, and considerate self. Yeah, yeah, he's like uh, doing some accounting, and then she calls, and at the instant the phone rings, he looks at it like it just shat on his desk. Like he doesn't <laughs> even know who's calling, and, and he looks at the phone, and so he pulls out a bottle of whiskey and just starts drinking. <laughs> This that, guy is a piece of work. That husband of the year awards winging its way to him for sure. <laughs> Such an asshole, man. <laughs> yeah. And this is also Pleasance visits her at the house. This is the best Pleasance pontificating on evil monologue. <laughs> yeah. Like he just shows up and she's like, Who are you? And what are you doing in my house? And he's like, It's a force too deadly for you to understand. <laughs> and he, I mean, he is going for the gold. <laughs> I've, got, uh, I've got that written down, like, yeah. oh, no. like uh, yeah. this house is sacred, his soul is corrupted, he is rage, you're just like, oh, fucking yeah. stop it, Sam, stop it. <laughs> in his haste to tell her all this, uh, he didn't think to knock. <laughs> no, he just comes in there, and, yep. and she doesn't say anything about it, she just accepts it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And is and is then like rightfully freaked out and calls her husband who who is a complete idiot. He's like, "Oh, this shit again." You know, <laughs> yeah. I know he's only been to town four times before, three times before, and slaughtered people. But fuck this, you're insane. <laughs> yeah, I still feel like you're blowing this whole thing out of proportion. He says something to like, "What have I told you about talking to strange men?" Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> fuck off, man. <laughs> How many times have you had that conversation? <laughs> Yeah, uh, like you like say, strong stuff across the board from Deborah here, but she's not long for this world. No, sadly not. No, and she is uh, and is dispatched in the garden after the world's shortest chase sequence. And a gargantuan geyser of blood. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. massive. Yeah, uh, arterial. Yeah, she comes down the stairs and sees the a crate where she put an axe. She had kind of laid an axe in this crate earlier. She comes down and sees that it's gone, and she knows this guy is is around, and so she tries to get out of there. Doesn't doesn't make it. Couldn't, and that's a great sequence. Like, yeah. I love how she pulls down the sheet and he's just there. Couldn't have been the mysterious short bald man that was in your house moments ago. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's the big reveal at the end of the movie. It's just Loomis has gone crazy. <laughs> this whole time. Uh, but then it's run um, right, right about this time that Kara comes home. And um, just quickly, Marianne Hagen never looks like she's at school. She looks a fair bit older. Like She's like, round about the 30 mark. Yeah, I sort of like, I thought about that. I, I, I kind of get a sense that maybe she, you know, based on what uh, John Strode, has said to her like she kind of went off and lived life for a while and then came back and now she's getting a degree some right. sort of degree at Haddonfield Polytechnic or wherever she is <laughs> uh, a little later in life so she yeah she seems a little older but I sort of buy it I also think what's her name Marianne Hagen who plays Kara is really good like she's she really good, yeah. natural and really believable and has a lot of tricky dialogue to contend with and i think she actually delivers maybe the best heroine performance in the series since the original um i know a lot of people like daniel harris but i think marianne hagan is just she has the most naturalistic performance of anybody that's been Dude. the female lead in one of these movies i'm uh, interested to hear what the feedback section is like on that one i'd quite like to open that up it's an interesting one there's, uh, there's some good atmosphere building here as she's kind of creeping around the house looking for her mum shouting mum over and over and over again understandably 
Um, and yeah. then she enters her son's room to find Danny sitting on the bed with Paul Rudd. Could they not have at any point answered that? Yeah, it's a little strange. <laughs> and it's also structurally, you, you kind of feel like there must have been something more cut in between these scenes because it doesn't veer away from the house for very long before we're back. And Tara's wandering through the house. And her mother was just killed. What I do like about the scene is, again, she's really good, much like Kim Darby, at sort of listening and stopping and being a little freaked out. There's no music during this scene either, which I think is a great choice because you're just on the edge of your seat without any prompting. Mm -hmm. But then she gets up there and and Tommy and uh, her son, Danny, are, and the baby are in the room. It's like, yeah, could, they could have answered her. Because she was clearly yelling fairly loudly. <laughs> <laughs> and also, how long have they been there? Did they? When did they decide to go there? And did they? Did it overlap with Meyer? Like, what if they'd walked in on Myers <laughs> trying to clean things up? <laughs> because <laughs> it, it does clean. It does clean up after yeah. himself. Um, yeah. <laughs> Very so, tidy. Also, yeah. after after Myers and Loomis, Tommy and the baby are the third and fourth people to just walk into that house yeah. <laughs> that that, <laughs> af that afternoon. Yeah. There's an open door policy at the Myers house. <laughs> I think it's Haddonfield wide, certainly for Sam Lunas. He he doesn't care. He's just coming and going. No, I think oh, yeah. he got, I think he got, I think he got like the key to the city years previous. He does what he wants. He's he doesn't deserve the key to the city. He he is responsible for the death of a young guy in a boiler suit in Halloween too. Oh, also true. <laughs> oh right, yeah. He like crashes a car into him and emulates some guy walking through the street. <laughs> Loomis doesn't always make the best choices. I think actually originally in Halloween 2 also they had the, the, the original way they had shot that ending where he shoots uh, or where the he, that they, the federal marshal drives them back to the hospital mm -hmm. and he's like get away from you know he shoots Michael and the marshal keeps trying to check on the body for some reason <laughs> and, and, Loomis, and, and, and Michael sits up and kills the marshal he slits his throat well originally Michael gets sat up and Loomis picked up the guy and Loomis tried to shoot Michael again but Michael put the marshal in front of him and he shot the marshal <laughs> so Loomis, if that had still existed, like Loomis has killed a lot of people too. So they should be just as scared of him. <laughs> <laughs> it's like him turning up unannounced in your house is as bad news as Michael. <laughs> <laughs> it's around this point that the film starts ladling on massive amount of nonsense. Uh, yeah, Danny and uh, well, Danny and uh, Carla and Tommy they all go back to Tommy's, and we realise that Tommy has done a preposterous amount of research. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is like our third layer of exposition after the opening narration and the radio show. We now have Tommy in a room bathed in Michael Myers. <laughs> media and he has this yeah explanation about thorn and he's created a some kind of uh, software that explains it <laughs> which is literally just a rune a stone floating at the screen and then a michael myers mask it's like an old Ge geocity site with like a, yeah, yeah, totally. a thorn rune and then a michael myers mask and then a he explains that michael myers comes home to haddonfield to kill when this particular constellation of stars that's shaped like Thorn appears in the sky, which happens at very strange intervals. It happened in 1978, 88, 89, and now 95. <laughs> 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 it does explain that. It does actually explain it. It says uh, the Thorn constellation appears from time to time on yeah. Halloween. <laughs> just, just keep it vague. Keep it vague as you like, and you've covered yourself. Like... Yeah. <laughs> But I remember, like at this point, I turned to Andy and I was like, "Has he 
drawn a line between a sequence of like decades spanning murders in his hometown and Celtic mythology of his own volition. Because yeah. that is unbelievable. Yeah. yeah, how did he come up with this? And well what's interesting is there's always I think in the in the movies, in the Halloween franchise, it was Halloween two where the idea was originally seeded because there's the scene where they go to the schoolhouse and they realize that Michael Myers has broken in there. And he's written in blood on the blackboard. Sam yeah, Haynes. that's right. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and that's an old, that's the old Celtic word meaning Lord of the Dead and all that. And they, Lewis explains it. But in the novelization of the first Halloween, they actually explain the exact same thing they explain in this movie, which is that, you know, many centuries ago, the Druids would sacrifice a member of a family, have a family member kill a member of their own family to protect the group as a whole. The, right. Okay. The masses as a whole. And that's in the original novelization of the first movie. So the idea has always been there. It's just that this movie movie finally just went oh let's just fucking embrace that <laughs> like it's That's like cool. daniel ferris was like we're just gonna go for that you know and really try <laughs> to explain it with this weird um constellation thing <laughs> and, and computer program that rudd has the computer program is my favorite it does come across here a bit like the ramblings of a madman where you would kind of start backing out the room with your kids yeah yeah I mean, a little yeah, yeah definitely yeah he's there's definitely some some weird yeah he, he's obsessed he's obsessed with it I remember the trailer for the movie, too. Like, in the movie, they only show the rune picture and then the mask and then this constellation, and it just says thorn. <laughs> but there's in the movie, there's some shot, and I don't know if it's from a, from something they shot or if it's just some stock footage or what, but there's, in the trailer for the movie, there's this moment where the word execute is typed on the on the screen <laughs> and the enter button is hit. It's like, oh, you're executing a program to do what? Like, like there's some sort of techno thriller side to this Halloween, you know? <laughs> it doesn't happen at all. <laughs> It's also nice at this point that we learn that Tommy has named the baby Stephen for yes, that's right. for no, some reason, presumably just a name he quite fancied for a, a child. I love how completely arbitrary that feels when he's just like, settle down, Stephen. <laughs> yeah, it's like, yeah, you look like a Stephen. That sounds good. Yeah, let's we'll just go with it. Yeah. So I was under the impression that Mrs. Blankenship was like catatonic or certainly very quiet. Very quiet. And the minute everyone's back's turned. She springs into life and terrifies a child with horrible stories about Halloween. Yeah, yeah. Danny goes downstairs. He, he disappears and Kara and Tommy kind of freak out that he's gone and they find him downstairs sitting with Mrs. Blankenship and she's telling him the story about the power of Halloween. Yeah, earlier in the movie uh, when they're driving by the Blankenship house, Kara and her brother, we haven't even talked about the brother. That's a whole, that's another <laughs> that's a whole other thing. Yeah. <laughs> the Tim Strode. Tim. Uh, but uh, they say, oh, you know, that old coot, Mrs. Blankenship, can't hear a thing. And I think it's just a ruse. I think she can hear everything. Oh, she can. I think so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And obviously we find later, find out later that she, is tied into all of this in a really nefarious way but she's you know yeah she's she can she's clearly heard everything including baby steven crying in tommy's room baby steven. um but she's probably aware of everything that's going on too she's got the she's got a leg up on everybody oh, yeah, she also yeah. quite uh heartwarmingly refers to michael as mikey miles uh been yeah quite <laughs> quite different tonally if they'd chosen to go with that as his name <laughs> yeah it would <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that would be, that would be quite a choice. Maybe even be creepier in a, in a weird way. Yeah, yeah. No, she's she's telling Danny about uh, uh, what Halloween means, what it really means. It's not just about trick or treating, and that's all all well and good and fun. But it's a time of great power when the spirits come and things get creepy. This is intercut with Tommy has agreed to meet Loomis at this uh, festival oh, at the God. college. 
yeah. where Tim, Kara's brother Tim and his girlfriend are trying to reinvigorate the town by reigniting Halloween and bringing it back to the town since it's been banned since 1989. And uh, <laughs> Tommy's wandering around this festival looking for Loomis. And I actually really like that. Again, this is like this intercutting sequence where she's, Mrs. Blankenship is telling Danny about what Halloween means and how it's a time of great power and darkness. And you've got Tommy walking around this festival in slow motion with these huge bonfires burning and these people in costumes and you see the man in black spying on him and it's pretty evocative it's a pretty great sequence that feels like halloween and again a lot of the movies feel like they were shot in california not really at halloween and not during the fall (laughs) and so i like that aspect of this sequence and then we 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 get a sense that myers is you know we see myers the lightning flashes outside the window of blankenship's place and we see him standing out there watching them and uh then barry sims shows up at the festival inevitably pillar of the community and national treasure barry sims (laughs) (laughs) yeah Yeah. I kind of feel like he's doing his best Dennis Leary impression. He totally is. He's totally the love child of Dennis Leary and Howard Stern. That's exactly what he's doing. Yeah. Yeah. My favorite thing is when he's on the phone with his his producer or whatever the show, and he's like, kick him in the face long enough and they'll lick you all over. (laughs) That's totally totally this guy. Yeah, he's exactly how he sees the world. Um, um, uh, while while this is going on, it's around this time because again, there's kind of there's a little bit of jumping around. Yeah, happily we see the the, the back of uh, John Strode, and I've seen that. Uh, I think they knew that John Strode was everybody's favorite asshole, and they really push the boat out when they kill him. This right? might be my favorite death <laughs> in there. I think. Oh, it's incredible! It's amazing. So yeah, John comes home completely wasted, having drank I guess his entire bottle of whiskey at work. That, 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 said, that, that, that ringing phone put him over the edge. <laughs> that was him for the yeah, day. Yeah, yeah, that phone ring. Yeah, he pulls into his driveway, runs over Danny's bike, and he yeehaws about it. Um, <laughs> comes in the house, and he's like, where the hell is everybody? Deborah, where's my dinner? Or he says, he says, thanks for the dinner. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, he's wandering around the house and um, just being a, an asshole in his natural state. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And nobody's there, and so he starts, you know, and then the lights go out, and uh, and this is after he says, oh, wow, she actually left me. I can't believe it. So he hears something in the basement. Now, this is where all the little setups from yeah. when Deborah was wandering around the house pay off, because he goes down in the basement, and this janky washing machine is, is running, and we learned from earlier that the washing machine has a tendency to overflow and run water all over the floor. So he goes down in the basement and it's just like for this kind of movie, this absurdly beautifully lit scene where the light is refracted off the water comes down to this (laughs) creepy dark basement and there's this light refracting off the water all over the place. The machine, the washing machine, he's got a flashlight and he shines it on this machine. That's like shaking. And um, he goes over and opens the machine, and it's the bloody linens from when Deborah was slaughtered in the backyard. And then Michael shows up behind him. And it's a great reveal because the camera kind of yeah. dollies pat around him, and you see a Michael in soft focus. And Michael grabs him, stabs him, lifts him off the ground, <laughs> and shoves him into the electrical box that was established earlier by Deborah tr- trying to uh, flip the circuit breaker. Stabs him into the electrical box, gets electrocuted, and... To the degree, to the point where that his head explodes. <laughs> this, like, <laughs> this is exactly what we've wanted to see happen to this guy. Now, in the producer's cut, he just got electrocuted. Oh, really? Uh, oh, no, no, yeah. no. Uh, and this is unbelievably, decided... unbelievably uh, rewarding. Yeah, it really is. 
it's like, oh, this guy really gets his comeuppance here. But they, they, yeah, they juiced it up by going back and shooting him with like the air bladders under his face, like his skin is bubbling. <laughs> he's and it's foaming at the mouth, and then his head explodes, and it is ridiculous and also awesome. And I especially love the shot where it cuts to the outside of the house, and you just see all the Strode. Oh, that's so cool! Up. Yeah, but yeah, that's uh, that's the end of uh, John Strode, Bradford English. That's another one of those scenes where I like to kind of think about the showmanship involved. Oh yeah. Yeah. From Michael's perspective, and you know, kind of like how much of kind of like you know yeah. putting the sheets in the dryer and setting them off and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, and that's that's another thing that had been missing from the series. Like he just was, you know, especially in Halloween Five, he's just like offing people. There's not a lot of showmanship, and in Halloween Six, some of that comes back. Like he kind of sets up a, a little house of horrors. Like the washing machine is going again, and it's this bloody stuff, and he's he, John Strode finally starts to get freaked out and. Um, <laughs> But then, of course, they take it into a realm that's even more over the top than we've seen before with the exploding head. Yeah. But I just love that they seed all those little beats before they happen with the circuit breaker and the washing machine and the water on the floor. It's great. We're back to the broadcast and the festival. Yeah. At that point. And um, Barry's talking to... Beth and Tim. Beth and Tim. Oh, we're way past that. Is Barry not dead by this point? Well, I mean, like, uh, like I think... That, <laughs> Jesus, I think you're right, actually. But, um, because they're gonna, because they're going to be heading back to the Myers house as well. Yeah, the plan was to take the show on the road back to the Myers house and record from the Myers house. Which, yeah, yeah, it's pretty ghoulish, but understandable, I suppose, given it, given Barry's kind of personality. Uh, <laughs> and, like, n- n- not unlike the last moments that we see of John Strode before he dies, where you kind of got the kind of the last cry of the asshole when he storms around the house, kind of just being a dick one last time before he dies. Um, we kind of get the same thing with Barry. We do, yeah. When he's on the phone yeah. about being stuck in a shithole town and all this stuff. Yeah, he, he's, you know, he kind of forces the taking the show back to the Myers house on to Tim and Beth. He's like, Oh, we're going to go to your house. I'm like, Oh, I don't know if my parents are even home. I don't know what, <laughs> if that's a good idea. And he's like, no nah, kid, we're going there. And then he gets on the phone and he says, yeah, can you pull the van around back? We need to get get going here because we're going to broadcast in five minutes. I guess the house must be pretty close by. So he goes to <laughs> what he, he goes to the the radio the van the radio station's van that he's brought there and gets in and he's chewing out his producer and saying he's going to wear some guy named Phil Sarducci's balls as earrings. And, <laughs> yeah, uh, and, and he's like. You know, being a general asshole, and then Michael Myers is just right there in the van and kills him, which is pretty strange and doesn't make a lot of sense. But in the producer's cut, what they cut out of this, to I think in order to speed up time, is I, when he gets in the van, there's a shot where the camera's kind of drifting past the van and yeah. continuing down the van, which they cut away from in the theatrical cut. But if that shot had continued, if they'd continued to let that shot play out in the theatrical cut... At the back of the van, it says Smith's Grove Sanitarium, and you realize that it's the same van that Michael took from Smith's Grove in the beginning of the movie. Okay. Uh, And that that Barry has just gotten confused because his van was parked. It looks the same. It was parked (laughs) near near the van that Michael drove to the festival. Why Michael's gone to the festival, and, and in both versions, there's not really a reason for Michael to go to the festival, but... He kind of makes a detour and goes there. <laughs> um, but yeah, he kills Barry in the van and then strings him up in a tree with Halloween lights. Yeah, I was thinking, yeah, like, that... at, at this point, like, Michael is moving in terms of just, like, the sheer, like, mathematics of getting from A to B. He is getting yeah. around. Because he offs John oh, Stroud yeah. also, but yeah, manages to get rid of Barry, but also stash him in a tree and also wrap him in lights. And uh, does all this yeah. without being seen. Uh, and then that scene with the little, yeah. gi- the little girl getting bled, like where she's kind of standing with the blood falling on. Oh, that's pretty. That's pretty weird. Oh, yeah, that's pretty harrowing stuff. I like that. 
There's a good, that's yeah, a really yeah. good reveal. That was a really good reveal when Tommy finds Barry's body in the tree. Yeah, he's yeah. Tommy's walking around looking for Loomis and and can't find him. And then this little girl hears this little girl saying, "Mommy, it's raining red. It's warm," which is really creepy. Yeah, and yeah, it is. Yeah, disgusting yeah. and unnerving. So Ty, yeah, Tommy comes around the tree, looks up, sees Barry Sims, who at that <laughs> moment falls out of the tree, almost onto the little girl. Then Loomis <laughs> appears just in time. And he says, we gotta, we got to get back. And so, you know, this is the definitive moment where they know Michael's in town and slaughtering yeah. people again. Meanwhile, Tim and his girlfriend go back to the Myers house. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Kara and Danny are still hanging out in Tommy's weird shrine room. Yeah, that's right. And, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, they go back to the house and have sex in his sister's bed. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Why yeah. he didn't choose his bed, I don't know. But they have sex in his sister's bed. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's a bit, maybe something else to talk to Dr. Lemus about. Some weird, di- yeah. weird, some really weird dialogue here as well. Kind of bizarre pillow talk. Um, <laughs> she said, she says something like, "Oh, I'm bad," and he's uh, he's got a line to the effect of, "Only when you wear crotchless panties and bark like a dog." Um, yeah, that's a really weird callback to when she was loudly disrespected by Barry Sims at the like interview part of the festival. Right? He says that to her. Oh, does he? Yeah. Oh, but, right. I totally missed but, that. But he says it to it's it's um he says it to her in a way that is played off as being kind of insulting, and then they call it back as being this kind of total whimsical throwaway remark. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's really weird, but it, it almost doesn't work because Tim is such a creep. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> oh, I, I, almost like oh, I kind of feel like he believes that, much like Barry. And I mean, Tim is just a weird guy. Yeah. Uh, he's, he, he's like exactly what the filmmakers saw as like the dumb grunge kid at that time. Because this movie was made in the grunge period. Yeah. I'm <laughs> and, gr- and he's totally in the plaid, you know, semi-long hair phase of his life. And he's just a total burnout <laughs> dumb. <laughs> and he, he's just kind of weird and creepy. And he says, uh, the creepiest line in this pillow talk section is when he says to her, uh, I'm going to go take a shower. She's like, okay. And he says, you know, got to stay free fresh oh that's right oh yeah. that's oh that's yeah. fucking yeah. revolting yeah 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 stay fresh what yeah, yeah. what are you talking about you got to stay fresh for the next round of of sex or what, what, what i don't know what you're referring to it's just gross the way he says I think, it. I think by that point you're better just getting on with it i uh yeah i wouldn't watch in between when i first saw tim walk on screen in the house in the kitchen i cringed because i very much used to look like that oh so did i, I that was, was like, me oh my god there i am yeah exactly <laughs> like you want to like this guy oh yeah it's like oh yeah i remember i remember that time period and i that's exactly how i look when i was 14 or 15 and and then he comes in and he's like belching and he when he sees the drawings that danny did of the the bloody murder drawings that danny did (laughs) he cracks a beavis and butthead he does a beavis and butthead imitation which is so immediately dates the movie and it's very strange (laughs) it's like what um, he's not an asshole like John and Barry, but he's kind of like, uh, this guy can go, you know? Yeah. Let's, let's get rid of this guy. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, as if by magic, he, he is off immediately. Yep. <laughs> Which is really creepy because, uh, yeah, he's taking a shower and he's, he's, uh, asking Beth to bring him a towel, which he does by saying, where are you when I need you, babe? So he isn't, he suddenly oh, is an asshole. God. Yeah. Oh, and yeah, then Michael is yeah. behind him in the mirror, and yeah, it's awful. And Michael appears <laughs> behind him in the mirror and slits his throat. And it's really, it's a pretty unnerving scene, actually. It's kind of creepy, and it's a pretty gross death for such a simple, such a simple death because he like slits his throat, and then you see it cut part of his arm too. It's really gross. I, I think I'm uh, as well like in a film that's kind of like 
teeming with kills that are way more theatrical than this. This one's almost more effective because it's so kind of abrupt and kind of shocking. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's the closest anyone's come since Halloween 2 to that sort of effect of Myers coming out of the dark. You know, like in the first two movies where Dean Cundey lit it so that kind of a dimmer comes up and you see him appear in the yeah. closet behind Laurie and I like... That's kind of what this kill is. It's that kill in this movie. So I I, I respect that. Appreciate oh, definitely. That. Yeah, yeah. At this point, um, Kara has a conversation with Beth because she can see through the window that she's there um, and kind of warns her to kind of get out of the house. It's too late. And Beth is kind of killed in view of Kara. Yeah. Um, and then Kara heads over the house and for some reason seems to be astounded to find Kara's dead body in the bed. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's true. It's like uh, she, she knows that she just saw her getting stabbed. I will say, though, just to backtrack a little bit, like Kara hasn't looked at the house in a while. She looks through Tommy's long lens camera and sees that the lights are on <laughs> and calls Kara and calls Beth. Again, there's nothing in Halloween five or really even four that comes close to a set piece like this. Like it's literally yeah. like a rear window scene. She like sees it happening and tries and says, oh, my God, I see someone behind you. And then at the same moment, sees that Danny isn't in the room anymore and is walking toward the Myers house where she just saw somebody get killed. Like, this is a great setup. Yeah. Like, this is a Absolutely. really great suspense setup. And and then she goes over there and, yeah, strangely is shocked to find two slaughtered bodies in her bed. <laughs> she just saw getting killed. But I really uh, like that sequence. Oh, yeah, the know? setup's really good. And this is kind of setting up Kara's first real standoff with... Uh, yeah, Michael. but it's at this point that the film kind of splits off into kind of separate narratives where Michael has his own narrative where he's just walking around from A to B <laughs> following people. But then we have, I guess, which has now become the kind of key part of the story where the, the cult have grabbed hold of baby Stephen and they're they're going to do... <laughs> <laughs> they're going to take yeah. uh, they're going to take Stephen and do whatever they need to do with them. Well, yeah, she goes over there to rescue Danny, finds the bodies. Myers chases her through the house. There's another great suspense piece where he's she hits him with a poker. He falls down the stairs. There's another great suspense piece where she sees Danny, but he's on the other side of Myers' body, and she has to get him, which is pretty cool. Yep. And then they race back over to the blanket ship house, trying to get away from Michael, who's chasing them very slowly because <laughs> George Wilbur's put on some weight since Halloween Four. <laughs> <laughs> He's still great, though. He's, he's, he's one of the best guys to play Myers, I think. Mm-hmm. He chases them over there. They steal the baby, yeah. And then it's there's this really weird cut to black, and then it cuts to Tommy and Loomis standing on the lawn after Kara and Danny have been taken. And Tommy says, I feel like I've been drugged. And Loomis goes, we have been drugged. And it's like, wait, what? <laughs> Where did- where did everybody go? And this, we just, it's like, it's a weird, it's the worst transition in the movie. And clearly they had to do some editing stitch work to make a lot of the transitions work. But this one, it's like the editor got to a point was like, ah, fuck it. We're just going to cut to black and then have them say, I feel like I was drugged. Well, and then Lucas says, it's his game now. Right? Oh, I know where, and I know where he wants to play it. Yeah. There's so, so many revelations <laughs> getting late, kind of thrown on here as well. Like, uh, we find out that Dr. Wynn is kind of the, he's kind of the head man of the Thorn cult and uh, Mrs. Blankenship isn't the silent death woman that we've come to love. She's a, a knife-wielding maniac and then Kara launches herself out the window for no reason whatsoever. Well, it's, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's the only place to go. Yeah. But, it's very much like uh, the Sally Hardesty in Texas Chainsaw, just, yeah. just run through the window, you know. But Sally's is a bit more, I guess, a bit more understandable and serves a purpose in that she actually gets away. But Kara's is for naught. Yeah. She, she jumps out the window and is pretty quickly caught and carted off to what we now find out 
is Smith's Grove Sanitarium. Another mental hospital, Mitch. Yeah, there's. Uh, I think that makes an even third of all the films that we've talked about on this podcast feature mental hospitals, possibly more. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's definitely the biggest, the biggest, the two biggest recurring themes so far. I think with the films that people have chosen are uh, mental hospitals and medical negligence. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this one is is the creme de la creme of that kind of movie too. There's so much, there's yeah. a lot, there's a lot of mental hospital, a lot of negligence, and so many bad things happening at this mental hospital that are suddenly thrown at you in the third act, yeah. which I think is where things, you know, as 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 much as I like the cinematic prowess of this movie compared to its the previous installment this is where this movie begins to sort of fall apart because this <laughs> is where they really couldn't figure out what the fuck to do with it after finishing the first version so let's take yeah, a minute it, to talk about the producer's cut then and how how it differs to the theatrical cut yeah so what happened was the the producer's cut was closer to the script that daniel farron's the writer wrote for the movie and what it, what it was is it leaned a lot more heavily on the cult aspect, which is what's been built through the whole movie, even in the yeah. theatrical. Mm-hmm. And so in the producer's cut, they go to Smith's Grove. Uh, Tommy and Loomis go there to rescue the baby as well as Danny and Kara, who've been taken off by the cult. Because we, what we've discovered is that Wynn is the leader of this thorn cult, as is Mrs. Blankenship plays some <laughs> heavy role in it too. And that, that, that sort of cavernous room that we saw in the beginning where they're prepping the baby to be sacrificed is the whole ploy is to continue the evil. They're going to sacrifice this baby. And so Tommy and Loomis have to go there to try to stop this from happening. And it really plays out like the original idea Barron's had was taking Halloween in the direction of like Rosemary's baby, basically. And okay. it's not just that there's this evil guy coming home every once in a while to kill people. Mm-hmm or even go after his family, it's much bigger in scope than that. Haddonfield, if they had continued the franchise where Farron's saw it going, it was going to be a huge conspiracy type deal, like that's centered on Smith's Grove as the locus of this place where they worship this, the, it's the thorn cult, and they, they, they sacri- make sacrifices every once in a while to continue the progeny of evil that are going to keep coming out of there. And so, you know, the idea being that Danny is going to take absorb the evil that Michael has by killing this baby. Right. Okay. Where the theatrical cut takes it down this sort of like vague route of somewhat cult, but also there's this weird, there are weird medical experiments going on in the hospital. The original cut, the producer's cut was they stopped Michael by putting a bunch of runes on the floor and trapping him in this circle of runes (laughs) while they escaped. Loomis goes back in to settle the score with Wynn and Wynn magically transfers the evil to Loomis and Loomis suddenly becomes at the the big surprise at the end of the producer's cut is Loomis is now in charge of Thorne. Like it's the evil is passed to him. Wow. The thing is, people seem to think the producer's cut is better on a storytelling level. I honestly put them both in about the same realm as far as <laughs> quality of film. And I think the producer's cut makes a look, maybe a hair, a hair more sense. <laughs> okay. Whereas the theatrical cut is more exciting. There's more going on because honestly, the producer's cut, even though it's more fluid in the storytelling and structure, it just kind of peters out. You're at the end of it. You're like, Oh, Michael is really a weak character. Uh-huh. Like he's yeah. so not scary. Anymore. You just put him, put some stones around him and he's stuck. Whereas <laughs> at the end of the theatrical cut, you know, he's, it's a lot more kinetic and and crazy and he's slaughtering a ton of people and he's pissed off and it's pretty exciting in, in a cinematic way 
they do take it in a very different route and uh, that Michael massacres the entire Thorn cult himself single-handedly. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, they're all, <laughs> I, I what we do see though anyway. is that the, the, the Thorn cult are all pretty fucking old, so it wouldn't be that particularly difficult. Yeah, he makes pretty short work of them, yeah. Yeah, he dispatches them pretty quickly, and then we have the kind of final showdown. Basically, the, the final showdown is more really Tommy versus Michael, in which Tommy offers up Stephen, but uh, Stephen... A little fucking idiot. <laughs> blows the plan. Yeah, he, Stephen blows everything by crying like a baby. <laughs> Uh, and uh, yeah, and, and then Tommy yeah. has to accelerate his plan and stabs Michael with some kind of corrosive chemicals. Yeah, it's so confusing. It's it, it it just doesn't make a lot of sense. There's like green goo, like reanimator yeah, fluid. Reagent. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, reagent. It makes Michael kind of sleepy. <laughs> I mean, it, it all it all the big. The big turn where they really change things from the producer's cut is where Tommy goes into the maximum security wing to get Kara and Michael starts chasing him. And then they come upon that room where they're doing some kind of surgery and Wynn shows up and says, OK, Halloween's over. You can take off those cloaks now. And it's like, wait a minute. Is Wynn saying that this cult, the cult is a ruse? Like, why were they doing that anyway? Then? Yeah, I, I, it, thought, I, thought, I thought that was really confusing. For, yeah. Yeah. It's like it's a front for what? What are you trying to? What kind of wool are you trying to pull over people's eyes? No one even knows. No one knows about the cult or the experiments. Anyway, Michael's pissed, slaughters the entire cult, and then chases Tommy and Kara and the baby and Danny into this room where they find green fish tanks with fetuses in them. Yeah. And, and uh, they hide from Michael, who barges into the room. By the way, Michael is – these were all reshoots, so Michael's played by a different stuntman who is – much skinnier than George Wilbur, a Michael Lerner. Uh, okay. And he like runs. He moves so much faster than Wilbur. And he's literally like, there are shots where he's literally sort of jogging after them. And it's like, oh no, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, they get in this room and yeah, there's a big showdown where it's mainly Tommy versus Michael. But they all kind of fight him. But they stand, yeah, they inject him with this green goo and he gets sleepy and Tommy just beats the shit out of him with this pipe. And it's, <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Not that either version made a lot of sense. This one makes less sense than the original cut. When Tommy is kind of beating Michael with the pipe, the way that that is presented is absolutely baffling looking, I think. Yeah, it's edited in a way where you don't really know if it's really happening or <laughs> if it's like a fantasy. or you know, It's edited in a lot of kind of really weird flash cuts and then repeating and oh, it's a mess. Yeah, they... they it's really strange. They, they they created this flash cut motif through the whole movie, which is not that doesn't happen in the producer's cut. Right. OK. The theatrical cut, in order to juice things up, they open the movie with flash cuts. The movie is riddled with stingers, like really obnoxious bass hits and <laughs> music cues. that are like, you know, all this like shot cut type stingers. <laughs> and there's at least four flash cut montages, the last of which is this one where he's beating Myers repeatedly with the pipe and there's the green goo coming out of the Myers mask which is weird and it's yeah, almost like they're weird. trying to yeah, yeah. and it's like they're all of a sudden trying to establish another new plot thread in this movie I mean, like <laughs> suddenly there's a there's genetic experiments going on or something and while it makes no sense I don't know I, I I appreciate how the it's an exciting climax like it's it's action-packed but it certainly doesn't make a lick of sense no and it's very very underexplained. All of that is all, all of that is fair. See, I just want to touch on something really quickly. Um, see when he dispatches the entire cult. 
uh-huh. the, yeah. the the kind of straggler from that group is one of my favorite deaths in it. Or the guy whose face gets mashed through. Yeah, the... <laughs> he gets mashed through the bars. When he like chases him, and when he gets yeah, he just kind of bangs his head out a few times. Then <laughs> kind of mashes his head enough through it to kind of use it as a handhold to knock it off its inches. Yeah, absolutely. It was amazing. Yeah, it's great. He like mushes the guy's face right through the bars, which apparently was more graphic in the original cut ah. of the theatrical cut, the, the recut. <laughs> You actually saw the guy's face like Play-Doh-ing through the bars and they had to ah. cut frames. But yeah, good old John Carl Beekler making it nasty. It's yeah. a pretty great death. Oh yeah, no, it's right up there. But but that pretty yeah. much brings us to the end of Halloween 6. Yeah, um, I mean, um, they're yeah. just they're just about like, uh, they kind of make their escape. Loomis says he's got business to attend to. Uh, yeah, which, which is sort weird. of alludes, it's weird because it's very weird. Yeah, and it's sort of, I think it sort of alludes to the loose, it's like a fragment left over from the producer's cut and then mm. you hear him scream, the, the camera goes back into the experiment room where they just beat the shit out of Myers, where yeah. Tommy just beat the shit out of Myers and the camera tilts down and we see the mask and one of the syringes laying on the floor and you just hear Loomis screaming. So it's like, I don't know what, what conclusion we're supposed to draw. Is he getting killed or is he discovering something horrible? Yeah. It's, but, uh, it's, 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 it's the most open of open endings. Yeah. The producer's cut is definitely a more final ending. It's more capped. It's like, okay, the evil's been passed to Loomis. Yeah. And Michael is out there now wearing, Michael has swapped outfits with Wynn. He put Wynn in the Myers outfit, somehow got out of the rune circle, is now wearing, <laughs> excuse me, is now wearing the man in black outfit, um, which is strange. But it's definitely, the producer's cut had a, while also being a bit willy-nilly and not exactly completely comprehensible, <laughs> is more definitive. One of the most fun, not to go off on another tangent, but one of the most fun experiences, movie-going experiences I ever had was that producer's cut, all that existed for the longest time was that theatrical cut. And the producer's cut was sort of this thing of legend that you could find a bootleg of it with the work print footage, like video quality work print footage cut into it, you know? Okay, right. And some of that was on YouTube, but you just could there, there was no great version of the producer's cut, and people were like, ah, this probably just doesn't exist anymore. And Daniel Farrens, who's a big Halloween fan in his own right and wrote the movie, God bless him, found, has hounded Miramax for years and hounded the producers for years to the point where they finally let him borrow the print and, and show it. Uh, this was a few years ago here in L.A. at the New Beverly. And they showed it and everybody showed up because everyone was like, what is this going to be? Is this really going to be the producer's cut, like a print of the producer, the original cut? And like everybody was like the entire horror community showed up. It was just we were all like chomping at the bit to see what this was going to be. And it and it totally was. And it was so crazy watching this. It was just a beautiful print. It looked amazing. And it was crazy to see this movie that could have been. Yeah. And now, of course, yeah. you can see it anywhere. It's now been released on Blu-ray and people get to see it, which is awesome. But at that time, they weren't sure if that was going to be it. Just they were going to show it and it was never going to come out. It was just crazy to be there with everybody watching this thing. And, and it was like, oh, my God, it exists. And this is what it was going to be. And this is like such a more fluid, sensical story. <laughs> this makes sense. And then they ended up taking this and going, nope, this is boring. It doesn't work for audiences. We got to juice this up. And they made this weird DNA laden medical experiment movie. <laughs> um, I think I still, though, like both of the cuts about the same, just because one is more kinetic and exciting visually and the other one is more kind of cohesive. Yeah, right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, yeah, this this was a hell of a pick, Matt. I, I think that um, I think that my opinion on this kind of falls into line with yours in the sense that I think that there's a lot I because I, I had a good time with it. Yeah, and I think and I think there's a lot of stuff to like about it, and I think that it undoes some of that goodwill by kind of how incoherent it gets towards the end, but not all of it. Uh, yeah, no, I and I think I agree about a lot of the kind of um, the kind of the te- the technical aspects and some of the set pieces and things. 
I think are all kind of are all things that are probably a little bit too easily overlooked when people are looking back at this. Yeah, I agree. I think I think that's sort of how we started this this episode off. I know objectively it's not a great movie. It's not a uh. good movie, but I think it was so derided when it came out. I mean, it was like and this came out one thing's one thing at that screening I was talking about that Daniel Farrens talked about was that this was a really weird time for horror. It wasn't a good year for horror. Yeah. And nobody knew what to do at that time. Like horror movies were in a weird state. The slasher boom had ended. And it was kind of like Freddy, like Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th. Everything had kind of petered out. So, and it was before Scream yeah. kind of reinvigorated things. And no one really knew what to do with this movie. And I think because horror was so on the downslope at that time and people were so over Halloween, I think if you go back and read the reviews... They were so cynical. Yeah, yeah. I, this I, movie. I kind of took a little over, look at that ahead of this, and uh, they were un- yeah. really unkind, like super unkind. And if you like, I actually pulled a couple. Like one of them, like Richard Harrington of the Washington Post, he said, <laughs> "Unfortunately, while director Joe Chappelle and writer Daniel Ferens took advantage of a clearance sale at the horror cliche Emporium, oh. they forgot to stop in at Plots R Us." And that's like, that's so like. Oh fuck yeah. you! That's so cynical and and yeah, snide, you yeah. know. And honestly, if there's any issue this movie has, it's that it's that they overshopped at plots R Us. There's just yeah, too much. I agree. Like, at least they, at least they fucking tried yeah. to do something different. Yeah, and I really admire like again, like I said at the beginning, I know it's not objectively a good movie, but I know I have nostalgia for it. It's the first one I saw in theaters. But yeah. if you compare it to what they what Halloween Five was, they tried so much harder. I mean, whether or not it was made by a committee. <laughs> they tried so much harder in this movie to make it good. Like the cinematography, the editing by Bricker, Randolph Bricker, like it's all, they just tried harder. And I really admire that. I think Daniel Farren's, you know, usually it's after a movie like Halloween five, that as producers, you go, okay, we should stop. We should, we should kind of start fresh and maybe do, like try something new. <laughs> yeah. But Farren's really tried to take all of the elements that had been set up including the man in black, which was probably tossed into five in mm-hmm. like a spur of the moment decision. Yeah. Yeah. And he really tried to make all that work to the point where it almost feels like a list actors in a fan fiction movie, yeah. you know, like, <laughs> actors like Kim Darby and Donald Pleasance and Paul Rudd, and all these great people in this movie. That's basically like a borderline that, but it's so well made. And especially compared to Halloween five, I just think it's, you know, the reason I really wanted to talk about this is I think it's really, it's worth a revisit to people who were, turned off by the reviews at that time and who also really looked down on it at that time because it's so much better than that yeah like it's cinematically a really well-made movie especially the cinematography yeah i think it's i think that's i think that's reasonable i'd probably agree and andy you are about you i have to kind of come down on the same side as matt particularly off the back of parts four and five which aren't great at all particularly part five <laughs> this is a a lovely tonic and I, I feel like it reintroduces Michael in a way that kind of feels familiar, but he's newer and he's angrier and he's more aggressive. And I just think there's a lot to like in it. And I do like the stupid cult subplot thing. Uh, <laughs> like I say, it, it, it would have been so easy to just bring Michael back and just do another by the numbers kind of slasher thing. But they actually tried to do something different. And whether or not that's entirely what as they hoped it would doesn't really matter at least they tried yeah i i agree i think like i i think there's nothing scarier than completely having no backstory like you can't top the first movie yeah and that's my that's my favorite horror movie of all time and you know the less you know 
the scarier it is. So I, I don't look at this movie in comparison to that movie necessarily. I just look at it as, well, Daniel Farren's and the Akkads and the people making this movie were trying to do something different. And yeah, there were a lot of cooks in the kitchen, but what I appreciate is that Farron's trying to make it more of a broader scope and more of a cult kind of movie as opposed to just a slasher movie. I see that. I see what he was trying to do. And between that and the, the filmmaking prowess, I just think it's something that really needs to be revisited if if people haven't watched it in a while. <laughs> but like you said, I think Michael is more menacing again. Yeah. Um, it feels like Halloween in the movie. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, yeah. yeah. So at the time that this episode airs, Blumhouse's Halloween will just be coming out this very day. What's your anticipation level like for that? I am so excited. I haven't been this excited. <laughs> um, I'm just I'm a obviously a huge Halloween franchise fan, and I've been looking forward to this movie since they announced it. And I think David Gordon Green is a really inspired choice as a director. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I had to when after it premiered at TIFF, I had to stop looking at things online because I just I. I don't want to know anything. I want Same. to go in fairly, yeah. fairly blind. Yeah, really. Yeah. I just, I really don't want to know anything. And I think he's an inspired choice to direct it. And I think from what I understand about him, he's a huge fan of the original and a huge fan of Carpenter. So, yeah. I, you know, even if he doesn't exactly imitate the style of the first film, I think it's interesting. They're making a direct sequel. And I absolutely don't mind that they're ignoring the other movies. I think that's great. Why not? It's oh. going to be interesting for sure. Yeah. 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 I, I can't, I can't yeah. wait. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, Matt, before we wrap up, I do want to take a little bit of time just to talk about uh, Dementia Part 2. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Because because um, obviously uh, we met at Fright Fest this year when you were over uh, for the screening there. Yes, that's right. Uh, I mean, I, I love this film. I've spent a decent amount of time since talking about how much I like this film. So for the benefit of kind of everybody else, uh, the story about um, Dimension Part 2 and how it came to be is uh, pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, we I was... Uh... We were really lucky to get into Fright Fest, and it's had a great run considering the story behind how it was made. Um, but it was, yeah, there's a film festival in Chicago called Cinepocalypse, and um, I had played a short there a couple years ago, and uh, I know the guy who runs it, his name is Josh Goldblum, and uh, he also knows these producers that I know, uh, Raphael Margulies and J.D. Lifshitz, who run a company called Boulder Light, who I had worked with before on the contracted movies. Right, yeah. And basically he approached us all and Josh Goldblum, who runs that festival, approached us and said, hey, we, we have this gimmick we, we want to try where we're going to reserve a slot for an unmade film, an unmade feature film. And he said, if you if you guys want to do it, we'll call it like the filmmaker challenge. And you have to from the day we announce the schedule of the festival, you have to make a feature film in the five weeks leading up to the festival. So they announced the schedule five weeks before the festival and we have to make the movie script to screen in five weeks. That's amazing. Jesus. And my first reaction was, that sounds fucking awful. No way. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I don't want to try that, but I, I started talking to Mike Teston about it and he directed the first Dementia and he's directed a couple of movies for Boulder Light as well. And we started talking about it and I just started... Mike and I have very similar sensibilities in terms of what we think is funny and and scary. And, and you know, he's, he brought up the idea of like, what if we made it a sequel, <laughs> called it Dementia Part 2. And the original movie is very much a straightforward, dramatic, psychological thriller. It's very serious. And it's a good movie. But he was like, what if we call this midnight, make this a midnight movie and call it Dementia Part 2? And I said, oh, that's really funny. Especially since no, not many people saw the first movie. <laughs> <laughs> and people are going to be like, what? Uh, what is this? So we, we just started jotting down ideas. And I think I was at Fantastic Fest when we both said, all right, let's do it. And they announced the schedule. And so 
I started, we started writing ideas down. I think we wrote it in three days. I prepped it for a week while Mike went off on a job and shot in Hawaii. And then he came back and we just hit the ground running. And we literally just wrote it for our friends, Najara, Townsend, Graham Skipper, Suzanne Voss, all the actors who were in it. And yeah, we made it start script to screen in five weeks. Jeez. Unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. And we showed it at the festival five weeks later, the finished cut. And since then, we've we have done some things to smooth it out. We got a real score on it because we didn't have the one thing we didn't have time to do before that screening was have a composer make a score. <laughs> uh, so we had a, a real score put on it and shot some little bits here and there just to just to kind of smooth it out. Mm-hmm. But it's not that different from the movie we made in the five weeks, really. But, you know, it's black and white. We made it just like Roger Corman made all of his movies in the mid sixties. And it kind of feels like that kind of movie. It's like, if you took, I mean, I'm hoping that's how it feels anyways. If you took a movie like dead alive and combined it with a mid sixties, Roger Corman movie or a Sam <laughs> Raimi movie, that's kind of, kind of what we went for. And um, uh, UK audiences are going to get another chance to see this, of course, because it's uh, screening at the Soho Horror Festival in November. It is, yeah. Thanks to Mitch Herod, who yes. is having that festival. God bless you, Mitch. Yeah, he's <laughs> yeah. <some> guy. <laughs> yeah, he's a good lad. Yeah, he's great. And we're really lucky that we're going to get to play again there. So anyone who didn't get a chance to see it at Fright Fest, come out to the Soho Horror Fest, because that is where it's playing. All the creatures were stirring there, too. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I'm in that, which was also super fun to make. Um, it's a really fun Christmas horror anthology directed by Rebecca McKendry of uh, Shockwaves Shockwave, fame yeah. and, um, and her husband, David. Mm. They co-directed it. And then I'm also in um, a friend of mine, Laurel Vale, who played my sister and Contracted 2. It directed a short that I'm in called What Metal Girls Are Into. I saw and that I was play, there as well, yeah. And I'm in that. I play uh, like the Norman Bates of Airbnbs, basically. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm just very lucky that I got to be in a bunch of stuff last year. Yeah. As well as, um, I think I, I'm in another movie that just came out called The Toy Box with uh, Denise Richards and oh, cool. um, and Misha Barton. Misha Barton plays my sister in it, and it's essentially Christine but in an RV. Oh, <laughs> it's like an RV. <laughs> but yeah, I was lucky to be in a lot of stuff last year, and also lucky to get to make Dementia Part Two. Yeah. yeah. And it's a miracle it turned out. <laughs> Good enough to play some festivals, I guess. Yeah. It's watchable enough. I mean, you guys have been so kind to it. I was so honored you put it on your list, your top 10. So thank you for that. Oh, no, no, no. Thank you. Um, so, um, uh, yeah, a lot, uh, so a lot of great stuff coming up, Matt. Where can people uh, Where can people keep up with you? Uh, on Twitter and Facebook. On Twitter, I'm at Mercer Shark, as well as... <laughs> Uh, as well as Instagram. I'm on there. <laughs> cool. Matt, uh, thanks so much for taking the time to do this. Uh, this has been a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. This has been amazing. <laughs> uh, this has been such a blast. I, I've been I've been so excited about talking about this movie and I feel like there was so, just so much to talk about with this movie and uh, I hope I didn't go off on too many tangents. I just tend to prattle on. So. Oh, no, no. We, uh, love, we, love, was... ta- we love tangents here. No, we love tangents. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, this was a blast and uh, yeah, it's a, it's a good time. Thank you for having me. Thank you. That man knows his stuff. Yeah, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so yeah, huge thank you to uh, the writer, director, producer, and star of Dementia Part 2. Mr. Matt, Matt Mercer, yes. Yeah, for joining yeah, us. absolutely. And um, talking Halloween 6 with us. And don't forget, if you like the sound of Dementia Part 2, you can see it this November at the Soho Horror Festival. Uh, Soho Horror Festival on all the social media channels and so- so- SohoHorrorFestival.com yep. uh, for more information and where you can get your passes on that one. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's another one down. <sighs> 25 yep. in the can. 25. Jesus, next what in the next week? That's us done this every week for six months. Two episodes a week for six months. At least two. Yeah. Yes, that's true. Yeah, yeah. You must be profoundly sick of my face. No, not at all. Not at all. <laughs> if anything, I'm I'm growing more and more fond of it. You're growing accustomed to it. Yeah, yeah. And your your kind of general 
presence, aroma. Oh man, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, but yeah, we can pay each other uh, sentimental compliments on our own time. Let's. <laughs> <laughs> we will be back on Monday, eight AM at BST with um, another mini sode where who knows we could be talking about the new Halloween. Yeah, that we almost certainly will be. Yeah, absolutely. Um, because yes. we will have seen it. We will have seen it. Yeah. Um. Uh. So yeah, all that and more. Of course, we'll have shockwaves one hundred feedback, Mitch's pictures, and more. In the meantime, you want to get in touch with us, you can. Facebook and Instagram, we are Strong Language Violent Scenes. You can also tweet us at Strong Violent PC or email StrongLanguageViolentScenes at gmail.com. Yep, and as you know, plenty of places you can listen, but try Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, Acast, iTunes. And if you listen on iTunes, please remember rate and review. review. Yep. And of course, to any of our uh, Alexa enabled listeners out there, you can get us on tune in which is yeah that's where you would get us on your fancy devices freshly acquired so we'll be back monday join us then if you can and in the meantime don't forget it is better to die a hero than live as food in a world of chuds good night good night you've been listening to strong language and violent scenes with andy stewart and mitch bain strong language and violent scenes theme by mitch bain production and artwork by andy stewart Find us on Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts and Podbean.